this is an unprecedented moment of restriction for us as journalists and for people in general in Egypt. Journalism has, has become the place where ideas are transmitted. It becomes, by definition, the battlefield. Rather than going into doom questions that we never like to ask, are we going to publish this story or not? Or are we going to report about this story or not? The question becomes, how can we balance the risks a little bit? In the chaos of the Arab Spring, Cairo journalist Lina Atala and a couple of dozen other journalists started an independent progressive newspaper that would tell stories from all sides. They called it Matamazar. Peter Cresta is, of course, the Australian journalist who went to Egypt in 2013 for an Al Jazeera story and was imprisoned for more than a year by the Egyptian government on allegations of reporting false news. At Storyology, our 2016 journalism festival, we brought Lena and Peter together for a very special chat about democracy, censorship, and the role of the press in the Arab world. I'm Kate Golden at the Walkley Foundation, and you're listening to a special edition of Walkley Talks, Conversations from Storyology. Here's Peter to start. One of the things that struck me when I was in prison in Egypt was was just how much support we had, not obviously from around Australia and around the world, but in particular from our colleagues, a lot of professional colleagues in Egypt. And I know, particularly given the circumstances that we were in, where we were effectively in prison for doing good journalism, other journalists who were supporting us were by definition implicated or had had the potential to be implicated in what the Egyptian authorities saw as as a grand conspiracy between ourselves and a terrorist organization. Lena, of course, was one of those who was quite outspoken, I gather, in in supporting us. And it actually meant an awful lot to have the support, particularly of your peers. You know, as as everybody here well knows, getting public interest, public attention is one thing, but it's the support of your peers that that really matters. Um, So it's it's a real honor to be here, to be sharing the stage with, with Lena. So I guess the first question really, I mean, the thing that, as everybody will remember, back in 2011, there was the Arab Spring and we saw a huge, what was then described as, as an uprising of popular, popular will, an expression of public opinion, and really independent journalism, Twitter and Facebook, all of the new technologies, the new social media technologies and independent journalism were really at the forefront of that whole revolution, weren't they, Lena? What happened? What went wrong? Yeah, uh, first, I am the one to be honored by being on this stage. It's, uh, there are not so many things that gives us hope in Egypt uh, nowadays. However, I have been saying how moving it is for me to be sitting with you as a free man after having spent month and month seeing you at court behind bars. So there are very few pockets of hope and you, know, you being free is, is certainly one of them. With regards to what happened in the last five years in terms of uh, freedom of expression in general, freedom of the press uh, in particular, is that I think in my opinion, having worked as a journalist before the revolution time uh, up until today, this is an unprecedented moment of restrictions for us as journalists and for people in general in Egypt in the sense that even before the revolution, uh, during, the, during the time of a dictatorship, 
there was a certain margin that we were aware and conscious of its existence and we could manage to use it to the most in order to, you know, voice, to, to make our voices heard on important cases and important uh, issues. This margin doesn't seem to exist anymore. We seem to be out there trying to do things on our own, but also not knowing what the consequences could be. One of the things, one of the skills that Mubarak had, I think, was, was to actually allow enough space for civil society, for the, for the Islamists to express themselves, but not so much that they were ever going to be able to take over things, although obviously things went a little bit awry for him in, in, in the revolution. Do you think that the government really understands how to manage this? I feel that one of the main issues our government is having is that it's not being able to be political enough about dealing with dissent. Uh, so I think you cannot expect to not have any form of dissent after a major uprising like the one that happened in 2011. Egypt has had years and years of political dormancy and only political activism on the margins. And the fact that we had a major upri uprising in 2011 cannot possibly be completely 100% quelled by any form of authoritarianism. And I think that's the game that is being played right now. And I don't think it's sustainable or it's going to be very successful. But of course, it's also very unpredictable. There's a lot of debate, there was a lot of discussion when, when we were in prison about why, in fact, we were being targeted. There were a lot of people that were talking about the politics of the situation between Qatar and Egypt, and people assumed that somehow we were pawns in that game. For me, it always seemed as it was really an attempt to intimidate journalists, and they came after us as staffers, as correspondents, as an Al Jazeera team, because we were politically convenient. I was always curious, and I have wanted to ask you this, and I, we, we discussed it briefly before we came on, but I didn't really get to the bottom of it. Although we really don't know what it was that motivated the Egyptians, what effect did our arrest have on journalists that were working in Egypt at the time? As you said, I think the, the motivation is questionable, but what is less questionable is the chilling effects that your imprisonment had on all of us. Uh, I do remember vividly how, in the course of following on your case, uh, particularly every time we would come back from court after a court session, some of the local reporters who are working in our newsroom would totally identify with the Egyptians who were your cellmates or who were with you on the case, like Beher and, and Mohammed Fahmi. I remember vividly one of my reporters telling me I could have easily been in Beher's place. And this is one of the things that is causing me or that is preventing me to think in the same level of freedom I used to perceive my job in the past. So, you know, less people are going to the street doing field journalism and on-the-ground reporting uh, and they cite your case as definitely a reason for, for their fear today. So definitely it had a wide-ranging chilling effect on journalists in the country and in our newsroom. One of the things that I, I always wondered about was the difference between the way that foreign journalists covered Egypt and, and the way locals were operating, because we always assumed as a lot of foreign correspondents do, that you have a degree of insulation, that you're protected to a certain extent, because we, you know, we're not, we don't have the same points of vulnerability. Beher in particular was, was vulnerable because he had a wife and kids, and he was explicitly told in the interrogations that you need to confess, and here's what you're going to confess to, or we're going to come after your family. And so those points of pressure are much greater. And as foreigners, I guess, we, we tend to feel as though we don't have those. We, we don't broadcast domestically, so we're not, we don't 
present as much of a domestic threat to a, to a state. Do you see that there are differences in the way that foreigners and locals cover these stories? I mean, like I said, the lack of, of a clear political arrangement makes it very hard to, to think of what kind of a risk you take as an international journalist working in a local context like Egypt's today, and if you're a local journalist. By the same token, we always thought that this level of insulation you're talking about would spare you from imprisonment, and it didn't at the end of the day. And even though we're very happy to see you released and everything, for me, it was quite shocking that you spent that much time in prison before the issue was settled and you could be released. So this level of insulation and what kind of risk the difference of, between being a local and an international does not seem to be very clear at this point in terms of protection. Uh, the other major example we have uh, nowadays in Egypt you know, comes from outside the journalism world. We, some of you have probably heard about the case of the Italian researcher Giulio Eugeni, uh, who was uh, killed in Egypt while doing his research. There is still an ongoing investigation to try to unearth the reasons behind his killing, basically, but there are also some indications of him possibly having been followed by the authorities for a while due to the research he's doing. Now, this is unprecedented. We always said that maybe local researchers uh, are more prone to intimidation as opposed to foreigners. Foreigners are always going to be protected by their passports, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So in terms of protection, I'm not sure. Of course, as an Egyptian based in Egypt, having your whole family based here, the risks might be, the stakes might be higher. You might be facing a far gloomier fate if you get into trouble as opposed to a foreign reporter or researcher. But the level of risk seems, in general, to be much more unpredictable at this point, I'd say. The Egyptian authorities always said that we're in prison, not because of anything, not because of our journalism. They always said that we were in prison because we had violated the law, that we had been actively supporting the Muslim Brotherhood, that we were financing the Brotherhood, that we were acting as propagandists, effectively, for the Muslim Brotherhood. I know it's a, perhaps a, an obvious and perhaps a silly question, but do you take any comfort from, from that at all? I don't, but I'm also not surprised because it seems to be the case in Egypt that any attempt to do real journalistic work independently from any of the existing power structures seems to be a form of breaking the law somehow. And it's actually not impossible to be breaking the law while just doing uh, your job very, uh, in, in its very simplest and crude form as a journalist in Egypt because there are increasing legislations that are being passed that would basically uh, prevent you from doing your job as a journalist. So we are commonly made to feel illegal in what we are doing, uh, even though we are doing the right thing. Uh, we are doing what our professions entail, basically, because this is an authoritarianism tactic. I must admit, it was something that always struck me. In fact, I still feel a bit embarrassed about it. You know, I guess as a, as a correspondent, you want to jab the government, you want to jab the authorities in the eye with something that really upsets them, with some really good journalism. <laughs> really, and I've done plenty of stories that I knew were going to upset governments, and it did upset governments, but <laughs> it was really boring journalism that we were doing. It was... It was it was as vanilla as you could get. I didn't know Egypt particularly well. I'd only been there two weeks before I, actually, before I was arrested. So I was, frankly, taking a very, very neutral line in my reporting. You know, I've, I've pissed off enough governments over the years and 
yeah. and been called in. But, but that's the kind of unpredictability that I'm talking about. You know, one of the things is that the story you were working on was not necessarily the, the I mean, of course, it was a very charged time, but also a few other people were also trying to draw this picture of what was happening in Egypt back then. It wasn't the most uh, forthcoming type of story that, you know, would really anger uh, the government at that point. So it's also, there's a great deal of unpredictability of what can land you in trouble in, a, in, in, in Egypt today that I think was very applicable also to the conditions of your arrest and prosecution. Let's go back to the way journalism works or, or doesn't work in, in Egypt at the moment. We know that the mainstream media has been pretty much taken over by businessmen, by supporters of, of the regime, of the government. As I said earlier, the whole of the January 25th revolution of 2011 was really driven by social media, by journalists that were really standing up to Mubarak. Do you see any sense that, that same, those same mechanisms, those same social media tools might have a corrosive impact in the longer term? I think, you know, the sheer looking at social media as tools does not help. Uh, I mean, I think social media um, as tools were properly appropriated by, you know, activists, uh, progressive journalists uh, in the period prior to 2011 and during 2011. And, you know, it played out very well and it paid off, I think, with, you know, this, this community of people managing to penetrate basically the mainstream and, and influence and support the mobilizations and so on. But so it happens, it's also a, a democratic space, the internet. So a lot more people are on now. There is crowdedness. There is uh, less of an influence for those earlier, early adopters, early pioneer voices whose words on social media could be amplified and could be heard distinctively. Uh, there is much more crowdedness right now. What I think should happen now in terms of like what, what would be the next wave of tools and all that, I think it's, it's, the answer lies in a bit more organizing uh, in the sense that I don't necessarily think um, doing the exact same thing as 2011, which is occupying social media with messages, is working anymore. But I also think that issues-based campaigns, small progressive organizations that are unsettling the traditional modes of organizing in the country can have a chance at basically shaking the waters a little bit. And I think that's already what's happening right now with the very little space left, you know, with the fact that a lot of the people, the communities who were active in 2011 have basically retreated to the margins. They have been starting to do things from within these margins. And there are things that, you know, belong to the category of our organizing as opposed to spontaneous acting. And I think that matters a lot nowadays. One of the things that struck me I was imprisoned in a place called Lumen Prison for a while, and my neighbours happened to be people, and anyone who knows anything about Egyptian politics, particularly that period, will recognise the names of Allah Abdel Fattah, um, Ahmed Meher, Ahmed Doma, Mohammed Adel. All of these figures were the leaders of the, of the, of the January 25th revolution. These were the social activists, the bloggers, the organisers on Twitter and Facebook the ones who are really at the forefront of that whole movement. And, and it struck me that for all of the technology that, that they had at their disposal, really all it took to shut the whole system, not the whole system down, but to really have a chilling effect on everything was to throw a handful of them in prison. You know, good old-fashioned prison. You, you, can, you can intimidate an awful lot of people. You can stop 
You can silence an awful lot of people just by throwing a few in, a, a few in prison and throwing away the key, and that's exactly what we're seeing now with those guys, isn't it? Yeah, it's true, and that's why I always say that I think we just need to outgo the tools as much as we can. I don't think the solution ever lied solely in the spaces of technology. I think we use technology in a very smart way, and we didn't use them just as spaces, but also as an organizing culture as such. And I think it's time to think of something else now. When Lena and I were talking earlier, we were also discussing the whole idea of risk-taking. One of the things that struck me, and I've spoken about this several times, is that I think that journalism now is, is a far riskier undertaking than it's, it's, it's ever been, particularly since 9-11. Because journalism has, has, become, has become the space where these, these battles, are, particularly around the war on terror, have been, have been played out. This is a battle over ideas and the place where ideas are transmitted. It becomes, by definition, the battlefield. How do you calculate the risks that you take with your reporting? I mean, it's hard to activate so much the risk assessment uh, consciousness when you're working in the, in the current context in Egypt uh, because it can be a reason to uh, stop the work altogether. And like I said, you know, I think my main issue with Egypt right now is that we live with a great deal of unpredictability. So, you know, back in Barak's time, it was more predictable, you know, what's a story that's not going to pass and what's a story that we can easily work on and publish and so on. And it's, it doesn't seem to be the case. And again, the example we're mentioning is what kind of story that you were working on in Egypt that, you know, caused your trouble, basically. So, you know, my, my attitude has been to try to, like, shut down the doors of paranoia while we're in the process of working on a story. Just try to focus as much as possible on getting it out and getting it out in a way that A, would reach people to the, most of, uh, to the most possible way, but at the same time in a way that is not that confrontational so that you know, we wouldn't shut the following day because we have a vested interest in continuing to exist. And then you know, once it's out, we can start worrying a bit. But we try to like, delay the worrying up until a story is published. How do you self-censor? I mean, how do you avoid self-censorship? When you're standing there, um, when you're sitting there over, over, the, over the keyboard, wondering whether or not you publish a story, you, you know, whether you publish a story, I don't know, about corruption in, in the government or whether you do something about know, local sports results, how do you effectively deal with that? I think by simply avoiding the question of whether we're going to publish or not and letting it transpire in different forms. How can we make the headline pass, for example? How can we make sure the flow of the story and its language okay? And so I, we try, and this is also where the collectivity that is our organization helps because we also manage to put each other's into checks about this. So rather than going into doomed questions that we never like to ask, which is, are we going to publish the story or not? Or are we going to report about the story or not, provided that we have what it takes to report about it in terms of the sources and the information? The question becomes, rather, how can we put it out in a way where all the information is delivered and where we can maybe you know, balance the risks a little bit? So it's more a question of presentation. This is where I think the self-censorship comes out. Then one of the things that struck me when I was in Egypt was I, I, I don't think I'd ever seen a society that was as deeply divided that wasn't already in civil war as Egypt. It was a binary thing. You, you were either pro-Mubarak and pro-regime, pro-military, or 
you were not. You were you were against it. There was no sort of very few. There was very little neutrality. There was very little. There, there was almost nobody who was ambivalent about it. Do you find yourself caught in that trap where you're forced to be on one side or the other? You're either seen as pro pro CC or anti CC. Well, this is this was the whole proposition of trying to put together another Mosul, is that we found ourselves to belong back in 2013, shortly before your ordeal began. We found ourselves in a place where we don't belong anywhere. Those two poles of being pro Sisi or pro Brotherhood, we are clearly uh, having our critical and political distance from both uh, players. And we found that this voice is very important. And there are many others also having that same voice, but finding nowhere to express themselves. So we thought that it was important to set up something with this politics at that time. The problem, of course, is that everything we publish is always being played out in the polarization and the division that you're talking about. So for example, we publish a story about the forced dispersal, the violent dispersal of an encampment of Muslim Brotherhood supporters, and we are directly charged or accused of being pro-Brotherhood. We publish something about you know, the, the flaws of how the Muslim Brotherhood handled the crisis of being in the last days of the rule, and we are automatically accused of being pro-military. So it was always easy to you know, charge us with these accusations, but I think with time, we managed to just confuse everyone enough that I think this was a, this was a good enough effect at a time where you know you needed to be part of uh, either of those two poles, you know. And, and that raises another question of, of of kind of vigilantism. It's one thing to be concerned about the authorities and the police and how you might end up being picked up and interrogated by them, but one of the other very real threats from individuals, ordinary members of the public who took it upon themselves to act as, as, as sheriffs, as local sheriffs, as local enforcers of what they saw as, uh, or as defenders of the state on the one hand or as defenders of the Muslim Brotherhood on the other. And so often you would never know who was, who, you know, when you're around, when you're, when you're particularly if you're in, a, in something like a demonstration or you're working out in public, you never knew who, around, who was around you and who was, who was going to take it upon themselves to accuse you of being a brotherhood spy or a terrorist or a, a spy for the government and physically attack you. Do you still, do you still feel threatened by, by members of the public, by people who are outside of the, the official structures? So two things. Of course, especially around 2013 and 2014, at the height of this polarization, uh, yes, it was very hard to not only deal with, with you know, government repression, but also with those self-appointed defenders of uh, the Brotherhood or of the government. So, and, and that's why I said it became harder and harder to do underground reporting, for example, because you didn't know who you'd be interfacing with when you'd go out to the streets. And a lot of the violence was actually happening mm. from citizens to citizens in the streets, which was a horrible time. Right now, I think the time is different. I think uh, there's less of that polarization. The time of the Brotherhood has sort of retreated to the margins of people's memories. And people now have to interface with the current ruling regime and express their different opinions on it. And this is where we are coming back to a bit more of a conversation and a spectrum of approval and rejection to the current regime. And that's, I think, a healthier point, a healthier point in terms of the conversation, not in terms of the fact that we have a whole political faction being completely sidelined. But we, we, we are done with this excessive 
division and the radical polarization that was a, a defining thing of, the, of, of Egyptian politics back in 2013. We've been talking a lot about Egypt, obviously, but do you see any parallels with your experience in other parts of other places? I mean, I suppose Libya is still an absolute basket case. Um, but other parts of, of the region that have been through, and Tunisia has obviously been through a fairly, has been reasonably successful. Um, but do you see other, do you see echoes or parallels of your own experience elsewhere? Of course, there are echoes of Egypt's experience elsewhere in the Arab world because we are, we are made to think that there are primarily identity issues that divide us as opposed to actual and more urgent issues related to resources, economic welfare social issues and so on, which should be really the main focus and the main site of contestations between citizens and citizens and governments. But the problem is that in the wake of, you know, post-colonial authoritarian regimes in the, in, the, in the Arab world, you find that a lot of the fault lines are drawn around identity issues. So, you know, you find the same thing in Bahrain, you find the same thing in Lebanon, of course, you find the same thing in Syria. And, of course, the manifestation of these politics are, you know, more radical in, in places than others. So, you know, you have a whole civil war in, in, in Syria. What was happening in Egypt, in my opinion, was not very far from a civil war if it wasn't put under control somehow. But it's basically the prescription of civil war that you could find anywhere in the region, mostly because of the overt playing out of identity politics, I think. One of those situations where there's never been a greater need for decent, independent journalism. It's never been harder to, to actually do that job professionally and with integrity. We've been going now for about 20, 25 minutes, so I'm going to open to the floor and see if there are any others who'd like to join our conversation. Has anyone got any questions or any comments or any thoughts? The state that you're in, do you think it's short-lived? Do you think you can carry on going from story to story? Is it some point it's going to be shut down? Or do you think there is longevity in this way of writing? I always operate with the thinking that uh, the organization can shut down at any point. And, you know, I, I also build my own detachment for it so that it doesn't become so devastating the moment that it shuts down, because it is very possible. Uh, of course, at the same time, in a parallel stream, we are hoping for it to survive for a longer time. You know, I, I think what we're doing is important in shaping a new voice of journalism, not just in terms of its political independence, but also in terms of its experimentation, its trying to do journalism in a different way. So, you know, of course I have my hopes that it would stay there for years and years to, you know, engage other young people along the road, but there is no certainty around that. So there, there are the two parallel thoughts living side by side, like everything else in Egypt is being schizophrenic, so, yeah. Do, do, you, have a, do you have a philosophy for the way you approach stories as kind of editorial philosophy? I mean, we have broad editorial lines, uh, not really a philosophy uh, as such, and, you know, broad editorial lines related to, you know, what is the angle that is not being covered by others, for example. And uh, are your readers responding? Are you getting the, the readership that you, that you would need to, to sustain it? Of course, we need to work a lot on our audience building. It's not easy. We are a marginal media in the landscape of Egypt, a country you know, populated by over 90 million people. But it's also a, a steadily growing readership, and it's interesting how we get massive response when we are doing big, heavy investigations. And it's, it pointed us into the direction of the fact that there is an appetite for good quality media provided it's offered to the people somehow. So, and I think that's a very, it's a driving thing for us. 
Lena, I was just wondering what steps are independent journalists in Egypt actually taking to organise or collaborate, especially collaborate around issues of each other's safety and representation, that sort of stuff? Yeah, I think it's something that we started to think about more actively uh, recently. So, for example, uh, there are other independent, small independent websites, digital media operating in Egypt, who are currently in the process of meeting and talking about how to you know, work with a bill, a new media law that will completely limit our existence online. Because in Egypt, there hasn't been any legislation organizing the existence of online media, and there is one in the making right now, and its main objective is basically to limit the presence of all these independent voices, which mostly exist online. So we've been working together on thinking of ways to create an advocacy campaign against this bill, for example, and to also use references from other countries of how they deal with online media. We've also worked together to amplify each other's voices on certain joint campaigns. So, for example, we have uh, this novelist who's been imprisoned, who has a, a charge of two years for publishing a novel that was deemed to uh, harm morality in Egypt. His name is Ahmad Negi. And we thought that, you know, this is such a major... It's a precedent that a novelist is put in jail in Egypt. It's yet one of the, the, the new precedents in Egypt in terms of limiting freedom of expression. So, you know, one of the things we thought of doing is that instead of publishing independently, we started doing uh, a temporary uh, joint publishing on everything related to his case in order to pressure for his release. Of course, he remains in prison, so our collective power is not that powerful, but, you know, um, it's good to organize and to work together nevertheless. Um, Lena, you, you're very good at articulating how you've managed to weave a way around what you, what's the unseen threat that you might face. But what I don't get a sense of overall, the impact of Peter and his colleagues' imprisonment on, on the freedom of the press overall in, in, in your country. You, you, were, you were standing out at the time. So the fact you're still here is probably, you were probably the least likely to have succumbed in that sense or to have not taken the challenge. But have people or organisations with less... Guts the new, I'm not suggesting they're cowards. I think I can understand why they wouldn't, but how much has changed? How much less is being reported in general in Egypt? How much, how much less informed are, are the Egyptian public? It's a very good question because I think what it boils down to, besides citing stories of our internal fears and how you're negotiating with it and managing to do things, is, is basically how much is not getting covered or, or how many stories are just being blacked out completely, and I'd say a lot. Not only because, you know, um, journalists are fearful, but even if the few of us out there are still trying to do work, accessing information at this point is becoming harder and harder. I mean, a main example for us is Sinai, uh, which is a peninsula on the east of Egypt, on the eastern territory of Egypt, which is the site of a major Islamist insurgency and which is, you know, a site of a major war on terror by the Egyptian army. And this is a place that we managed to go to physically and cover up until about 2013. In fact, my last trip there was in, in early 2014. After that, it's been just impossible to go given how, uh, not, not given the threats of the violence, because like I said, we used to go and cover, but also the desire of the different players out there to control the story is just making it impossible to go there on field and do any meaningful reporting. So it's, it's one of the things that make me very sad because it's one of my beats, it's one of my specializations, and I feel that I'm failing completely at, at uh, following it properly because it's just impossible to do the reporting, even if you have the will, even if you're not fearful. 
And there are so many other examples like that, you know, corruption stories, There's terrorism. Also, there are also stories like the Sinai, where, is, where even if you were to go, the only way you could go would be with the collaboration of the authorities, and that means to capitulate and effectively tell the story that they want. And, and you're, you're better off almost not telling the story rather than telling one that's totally. hopelessly biased. Yeah. Well, I think my question largely follows up that, that question uh, that was just asked, and that is, can you give us some idea about the... the I mean, it's a, it's a headwind, it's, it's what's working against you as a media organisation in Egypt. It, the Egypt Independent was closed down... And you were part of that. So can you give me a rough run-through of the circumstances that surrounded that closure? Because I think that kind of illuminates some of the things that you're talking about as well. Well, Egypt Independent was the publication I used to run before, uh, before Madame Asr, and it had to shut down in early 2013. And uh, it, it belonged to a bigger media corporation, one of the big mainstream corporate media in Egypt. And, you know, they had to shut it down, citing a financial crisis, but also after the, it's, it's, uh, it's shutting down. The owners and the, the managers of the, of the media corporation came out and said that the problem with Egypt Independent is that they were so politically divined and different from our lines of coverage. So that's why um, it ended up having to shut down. And the main reason why Madamasa was established, why we established Madamasa, is that it was impossible to work for anyone at that point in, in, in Egypt, uh, back in 2013, everyone was basically aligning themselves with either the upcoming military rulers or with the Muslim Brotherhood, and it's not a position that we were comfortable with or were even thinking that we would be able to do our journalism through it. So that's why we had to establish our own thing, and that's why MEDA is this co-owned collective of journalists that we control completely because we are the journalists working in it and owning it at the same time. The same challenges persist uh, because, you know, if we were lucky enough to be numerous and to be able to, you know, pull out all our resources to put out a small media organization, it's not even uh, possible for other journalists who, you know, still want to break important stories but who are completely constrained by the, the media organizations that they are working with. So there are more and more progressive, good journalists who are being fired, for example, from their newsrooms because they are bold enough to bring back to the newsroom important stories that need to be told, let alone, of course, the stories that don't get even published. So that's how it is. Lena, we're well aware of the support that Australians had for Peter Gresta while he was in jail. What was the sentiment like from the mainstream media within Egypt towards Peter? <laughs> <laughs> of course, anyone who was, uh, who was uh, supporting Peter and his colleagues in prison in that case back then was completely discredited as, uh, as a foreign conspirator or as, uh, as, as people who are betraying the national interests of the country, us included. And, you know, the card of them working for Al Jazeera, which is a network that is viewed in Egypt as, you know, set up to just harm the national interests of Egypt, was always being used. That we are supporting Al Jazeera and its journalists in basically harming the national interests of Egypt. So any act of solidarity or a statement of support or, you know, actual basic good coverage of uh, the case uh, was landing us a lot of criticism for, for you know, betraying the nation, uh, basically. Yet there were a lot, of, a lot of journalists who also spoke out very courageously. I think the uh, journalists' union, the, the court said that we, we, we weren't journalists, we weren't real journalists, we were spies, and the journalists' union said, well... They are. They are, and we'll accredit them. Yeah. You know? And so there was a lot of very courageous people who stood up. Yeah, that's true. Journalists who really stood up and, and, and fought and spoke very strongly in support of us. 
Okay, we've got time for one fairly brief question. Yes. I wanted to ask about, it seems to have become more unpredictable and more unsafe reporting in Egypt. Where will that change and that improvement for press freedom come from, do you think? I, I don't know, you know, I, I don't have this prophecy of, I, I work in a lot of unpredictability myself and I don't know where we will be tomorrow and so on, but I guess the fact that we opted for continuing to operate in these difficult years is very key. And I think if for however long this period will last, uh, you know, uh, regime change or whatever, if we go through it alive and survive, I think that would be an important opener for other media initiatives out there who would want to do things but are unable to do it right now. So I think the key thing is to try as much as possible to resist the fear, the paranoia, and so on, so long as we are safe and sound relatively at this point, and then see uh, what's going to happen. I think those years are very key to survival, especially given that there has been a lot of withdrawal in the last three years, since 2013, from you know active players, good journalists. There is massive brain drain in Egypt nowadays because people feel that there isn't the space in which they can operate. So I think, you know, those who opted to stay despite the difficulty maybe are paving the way for something better, but maybe I'm completely delusional and, you know, we'll all end up in prison. So, you know, I'd be a loser at that point, so don't listen to me. You've been listening to the Walkley Talks podcast. If you like this stuff, here are three things you can do. One, sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe. Two, give us a rating on iTunes. Three, send us a few dollars to keep doing it at walkleys.com slash donate. Lena Atulla's visit to Storyology was made possible thanks to the Australian government's Council on Australian-Arab Relations. This podcast was produced by me, Kate Golden, for the Walkley Foundation at the 2SER Studios in Sydney, Australia, and it was edited by Nina Kopel. Till next time.